The Parking Podcast is brought to you by the International Parking and Mobility Institute, the world's largest association for professionals in parking, mobility, and transportation. Learn more at parking-mobility.org. Hello and welcome to The Parking Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the $100 billion parking industry and the people that make it go. I'm your host, Isaiah Mao, and this is The Parking Podcast. Views and opinions are my own. Welcome back to another episode of The Parking Podcast. With us today is Matt Willenbrink, Chief Commercial Officer at Fiber. How are you doing today, Matt? Doing good. How about you? I'm great, man. Thanks for uh, joining the podcast, and we are excited to learn about Fiber. So tell us a little bit about Fiber. Sure. Uh, Fiber has been around for 22 years. So in the the IoT space, we've been IoT since way before it was even a thing or even before it was cool. We began in the late 90s doing a, a rudimentary version of an in-ground parking sensor and throughout the early 2000s migrated uh, that technology into what we would call and what everyone's more familiar with today, the, the in-ground parking sensors or the pucks. And about 2012, we realized as well that smart city applications were far more robust than just parking and developed our platform out to allow us to facilitate many of those other use cases. So right now we have not only parking and curbside management, but air quality. Uh, We have intelligent lighting controllers that allow us to dim LED lights and do other things with them. We do water sensing. So if you think of open bodies of water, rivers, lakes, streams, or even water that's standing on roadbeds, we can detect that. And we have a few other interesting use cases that are outside of the smart city scope. So uh, some ag tech things and some uh, Department of Homeland Security and some defense applications as well. Wow, the 90s. I had no idea that's been around that long. And so was, was the parking sensor kind of the first core product for fiber? Yeah, actually, it began even before a parking sensor. So we had uh, one of the first patents to actually connect an inductive loop directly to a parking meter. So if you think of that technology and the logistics of actually cutting into every curb and running a ground loop at every parking space, you know, we really quickly realized that that was not a viable solution and quickly began developing the, the wireless parking sensor and the technology that has evolved into what it is today. I had no clue. Yeah, I'm very familiar with loops and garages. I had no idea that yeah. people were dabbling that with on street. And so, yeah, so you guys are like a parking company. I thought it was more of a smart city, but you, I know you do it all, but you started with those parking core fundamentals. That's pretty cool. So, yeah, lots of cool stuff. I'm, uh, I'm actually training for an Ironman. And so I'm always wondering how do they know like the pollution in the water? And it's, it's products like you guys, you guys provide that, that tell us that. Uh, lots of cool stuff we talk about, but I want to focus on, the sensors because we're getting a lot of questions. People maybe not sure about parking sensors, how they work, or the difference between camera or in-ground sensors. So if that's okay with you, I'll just dive right in with some parking sensor questions. Let's do it. All right. So let me guess first talk about the physical product and then we can kind of discuss application. But uh, you mentioned the term hockey puck and that's something our listeners are familiar with when they hear sensor. So it's an in-ground sensor. Kind of describe what what is, I know it looks like a hockey puck, but what, how, how does it fit into the ground? Just kind of explain yeah. a little details about that. Yeah, like you said, and like I mentioned before, it, it's kind of like a fat hockey puck. They're four inches in diameter and 1.6 inches thick. They're matte black in a, you know, a plastic housing that's been designed to withstand the environment, the 
UV uh, rays and all the other kind of abuse that you know you can imagine that a, a sensor placed into the pavement you know has to endure. We typically core drill, uh, so we'll core down, uh, you know, take out the maybe three inches of the the actual roadbed material, and then we level that surface with some sand. We place the sensors in, and then you know either epoxy or a, a polyurethane adhesive to kind of glue them in place. They you know, unlike some other sensors, ours sit completely flush. Actually, they're just a fraction of, of an inch below the, the surface of the roadbed. So it's, you know, once they're installed and once they get a little bit of debris you know, or dirt and weather on them, they blend in usually seamlessly with, with the asphalt and, you know, are not an obstruction to, uh, you know, any vehicles or, or, or anything. They're almost invisible to the eye. Oh, I didn't think that. So I always envisioned them being above the pavement. So you're, you're just saying yours are almost on par or even below the level of the surface. That's interesting. Yeah, that's correct. That's actually pretty important for uh, a, a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, if you think about areas like, uh, you know, up north or, you know, we were talking about snow before we started this, uh, you know, running snow plows or even running street sweepers, you know, having them below that surface or flush with the surface is critical to, to allow cities to still appropriately clean and remove debris from the streets. Yeah, it's a question I had is, yeah, I envision these snow climates with the plows running and are they just yanking them out? But that answers my question there. But uh, what about like, how are they powered? Are they, I'm assuming battery, not solar, because there's cars on top of them most of the time, right? Are we, we're talking about batteries here? Yeah. And, you know, that's where we spent a lot of our time, you know, in our early, early life cycle of developing this technology, um, you know, and some of that is just the adolescence of the technology and some of it was just the the enhancements and the advancements we've seen over the last decade in in battery technology as well um, our entire platform has been designed to be ultra ultra low power i mean if you think about putting a uh, putting a parking sensor into the ground and then powering it you know you don't want to have to go back and and service those things every 6 months every year every 2 years even so we've developed our our entire platform to be low power enough that we can we guarantee our sensors for five years. They usually last seven to 10 in the ground. And we've developed our business model so that once they're installed, that's a single, a single cost. So cities don't have to worry about, you know, in six, seven years, eight years, 10 years, replacing those sensors and paying to, to put in a whole new set of infrastructure. You know, as long as they're under a contract with us, you know, we'll come in and, and swap those out when, when the time comes. Well, I had no idea they last that long. You guys are like the, the Tesla of, of parking sensors. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> that was, you know, and that was a huge challenge that, and, and one of the biggest challenges we faced. And, you know, I mentioned some of those other verticals that we, that we play in, but parking is probably the most difficult. We probably picked the worst one to begin with. And, you know, we did some, you know, some of the earlier deployments we'll talk about in a bit, but um, that that people might be familiar with, but we you know we took a lot of those real world learnings and have continually improved the product and are now I think it's on our, our about our four and a half generation of uh, of parking sensor. That's really cool. So have you guys flirted with with solar panel like like I said earlier? I'm assuming the cars are covering; they're not getting yeah. a lot of sun, so that doesn't make sense, correct? <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, you think about. Cars in some spaces, it, you know, solar could make sense, but then you know you're you're not utilizing your parking inventory to the to its maximum benefit. You really want cars over all those all those mm -hmm. sensors and in all those spaces. So, 
you know, solar doesn't really make that much sense. Um, so we had to find a way to make them work off battery power. Okay, great. And now and I, we managed, I've managed some operations in my career, like Cedar Rapids, that's prone to flooding is what about water and being underwater and rain? How, how do they react with water? Not a problem. They're all uh, environmentally sealed when they're manufactured. So being in the ground, obviously water could be a problem. I mean, we're drilling a hole in the pavement and, you know, if any water does get in there, then they need to be able to withstand that. So they're rated to, to be completely submerged. So you, you put in a, you know, a thousand sensors, battery lasts anywhere from five to 10 years, but when there are some that have to be replaced, what's typically the reason is, is there a common theme there or that's usually not an issue? There's a couple couple reasons. And the biggest one that we see, which can either be a, a, a project for us or a tremendous disappointment is resurfacing. So a lot of times in our service agreements with the cities, we uh, ask them to notify us or let us know or work with us when they do know that street resurfacing is going to happen. And what we typically do in those use cases is we'll come out, we bring our team out, we pull the sensors up, let them resurface, and then we reset them into the into the same spaces after they're done with the resurfacing activities. That's the best case scenario. What happens not all the time, but far more often than we would like. And then what the, our partners at the cities would like is, you know, the street crews come in and do a resurfacing and don't notify every department. So we just see entire blocks of sensors go offline when they do the resurfacing. And then we have to go and put them back in because those street eaters do a, do a number of chewing up the sensors. Uh, great. Thanks for the clarification. All right. So my last question about the physical product is how it works. Is it like, uh, you know, is it like infrared? Does it have some kind of camera? I mean, how, do, how, do, how does it actually know that a car is over it? No, that's a good question. And we've toyed with a number of different technologies. You know, when I, when I mentioned we, we started with the ground loops, that's obviously detecting a magnetic field. Our first generation parking sensor had a magnetometer, so it literally worked like a metal detector. It looked for a large magnetic signature, a change in the Earth's magnetic field above it to tell us when a vehicle was there. You know, we then toyed with uh, looking at using some optical solutions uh, in our sensor to augment the magnetometer. We looked at radar. We looked at, you know, a couple other different technologies and methods to, to help make them more accurate. And at the end of the day, we found that there were a couple challenges with most of those. You know, when, when we start adding other sensor types into it, you know, you think again, back to the battery life and the battery power, all of those things take energy. And most of those, you know, just consumed more power and we didn't see a significant increase in the accuracy. So we've just focused on, on improving our algorithms and how we interpret those magnetic signatures to get to what we have right now, which is a, about a 98% accuracy. And then we ran into some other challenges when we looked at some of the optical-based solutions as well uh, early on, you know, using infrared as a, as a dual modality to, to help augment that, ma that magnetometer reading. And if you think about putting, a, you know, essentially a camera lens into a sensor into the pavement, you know, what happens in the street all the time, you know, you, you get dirt, you get debris, you get oil spills, you get street sweepers that come by and can abrade the tops of those surfaces. So if you think about having a, you know, an optical lens, uh, same as solar, 
looking at those types of solutions, going back to the magnetometer and just making it the best that we possibly could was, was really the, the smartest and most economical solution that we could come up with. So that's why it can still work if it's covered with snow or if a person is standing on top of it, it knows the difference between a car and a person. Exactly. Unless that person is wearing, you know, 10 pounds of metal on them, then, then maybe we'd have a challenge. We deployed in Montreal uh, several years ago and our sensors were functioning under a foot of snow and ice quite regularly. And in fact, now we have a couple deployments where we've actually, you know, some of the streets have the decorative uh, pavers. So instead of it being concrete or asphalt, they actually yeah. have the, the, the cobblestones. Mm -hmm. We can actually remove those cobblestones, core drill underneath those into the, the bed uh, beneath that, place our sensors in there, put the cobblestones oh, back wow. in. So we actually have a completely invisible uh, deployment that works perfectly. So those might, you know, those sensors can read right through those cobblestones with no problem. That's really impressive. Yeah. I know exactly. And I've been to Montreal and I know exactly what you're talking about yeah. the, the, with the cobblestones. So that's really cool. So I know you guys have a lot of products, but I want to talk about, you know, the difference between, because there's some new companies out there that are using cameras for occupancy, uh, maybe. And there's some benefits from cameras as opposed to sensors. And I think there's some benefits from in-ground sensors as opposed to cameras. So what are, what are some of the benefits, would you say, using a product like Fiber's in-ground sensor versus camera analytics for occupancy? Yeah. And obviously, you know, since ours is a sensor and non-camera based solution, we're a bit biased, but there, I think there's use cases for both. You know, there's a number of challenges that we're facing with, with camera based systems that, that our sensors don't, don't have to deal with. Uh, privacy and security is, is one that's a, a very hot topic for a lot of cities. And, and, you know, as you get into particularly in like California, or if you get into Europe, uh, privacy can be a tremendous uh, issue and capturing a lot of that, that optical data can be a, a, a tremendous concern or, or completely illegal in, in some of those areas. So that's one challenge with cameras, uh, accuracy, you know, and obstructions, typically a camera has to be mounted high up and have good, good line of sight for a number of spaces. And, you know, environmental factors can in, in, inhibit the, the accuracy of those, those, those camera-based systems. So if you think of a heavy rainstorm or snow or fog, or I know sometimes they have difficulty with, with white vehicles, or uh, if you get, you know, if you're looking down a street and you have a large box truck, um, you know, that might obstruct the view of the, the, the two spaces past that. So there's a number of, you know, accuracy issues with, with camera-based systems. You know, one of the other challenges that they face is, is power consumption. So, you know, you need to have a good place to put them and you need to typically have a, a higher uh, source of energy or line power to power those devices 24-7. So that, to some degree, can inhibit the placement, again, with a, a completely battery-powered network and, and, and sensor platform, you know, we can put them into, into a spaces where they may not be ideal for camera-based solutions. Yeah, no, I, that's some great points there. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, what about costs? I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking a camera's more expensive than a sensor, but you probably need less cameras and sensors because a camera can read more. But I don't know if you've ever compared apples to apples or have a thought on that. Yeah, we have. Obviously, you know, being in the space, we want to know what our, our competition is and, and what makes the most sense for cities. And we've seen, you know, 
sometimes cameras do make sense, but a lot of the time we've found that, you know, while a camera can cover more than one space and, you know, usually five, 10, 15, 20 spaces, uh, the cost of the cameras is significantly higher. The requirements for getting the data out of them. So sometimes you need to run, you know, fiber optic or, or ethernet or network cables to them. And, you know, the, the power consumption and just the overall cost can sometimes be either on par with putting sensors in every space, or it can actually sometimes be even more expensive than putting sensors in every space. Oh, that's great. And, and speaking of that, you know, what, what is your pricing models? Is this, if we have a city or a university that is listening, they're interested. So is this something they, they purchase these, they lease it, or is it like a software as a service model? How, how does pricing work? Or is it different, different for everyone? No, it's, it's, we have a pretty simple model and it's a hybrid. Uh, so there is a hardware component and then there's a, a software as a service component. So, you know, there's the initial installation of our gateways and, and our sensors. And, you know, that's a one-time cost. So, you know, say there's a hundred, a parking lot or a, with, with a hundred spaces, you know, they would, they would pay for the hardware and the gateways to put in those hundred sensors. And then there is a monthly fee for each device that's installed. So then, you know, which, which on our, on our case is usually anywhere between, you know, it's about $8 to $9 a month. And that covers all of the data that covers all of our mobile applications that covers all of the analytics as well as the warranty and installation and service. Oh, that's great. I like that model. So now let's get to the fun part. So you have the sensors in, what are some of the benefits to having in-ground parking sensors? So obviously, you know, parking availability, apps, enforcement, but maybe I'm sure you have a list, maybe just kind of go through some bullet points of what, you know, once a city has these in, what do you do with that? Sure. Um, and and then I'll go into a couple of use cases that are kind of interesting as well. Uh, Great. But, but first, like you mentioned, wayfinding is a big one for a lot of cities. So we find that a lot of our customers have, at least in the last couple of years, have been medium tier cities or smaller municipalities. So even if you think of suburbs that that are, uh, you know, the cities that have twenty to fifty thousand people in them, um, they usually have a lot of parking, and there's usually uh, certain districts or corridors that are very heavily utilized. And then you've got the areas that are tremendously underutilized. And most cities want to help normalize that load uh, on their parking inventory and their parking ecosystem. So finding ways of informing the citizens and customers exactly where parking's available uh, so that they can, you know, avoid circling in those three or four blocks that they never find parking in and maybe go to the the parking lot that's around the corner or behind a building that are, are less well known, uh, but are always open. So using the, the real-time data through mobile applications, uh, through a wayfinding app, ours is called Parking Genius, and we can white label it for cities as well. So it can be branded as the city's own wayfinding application for citizens. Let's them tell, you know, tell people in real time where parking's available. I've heard two schools of thought. Just tell me, I'm sure you have an opinion on this. So some people say like, don't give the customer space by space because sometimes it causes more uh, traffic because, you know, they say, oh, a spot's open in front of the store four blocks away. And of course, by the time they get there, these paces are turning over so fast, then they look for another space on the app. Rather, you kind of maybe show street by street or zone or block like, you know, 84% occupied on this block or this zone. 
is there one is there a right way versus wrong way in your opinion and how you what you've seen no it's and and you know it really depends on the the city and the municipality and you know you know i i hate to say it but every every city and every customer is unique in their needs and challenges um and and no it's so true yeah, yeah. And how the people actually, uh, you know, interact with their environment um, in those areas. You know, there is some merit to not showing, you know, space by space. But I think that in this industry, a lot of the pushback from showing space, you know, single space occupancy in real time has been more about not having accurate data or data that's accurate enough from their sensors. Uh, And, you know, at Fiber, we were even guilty of this in our earlier days. Uh, you know, when we were 80% accurate or 85% accurate, which means you're wrong 15% of the time. We've seen some players in the market that, you know, you could flip a coin and probably have a, a better indicator of whether the space was available or not. So, you know, in those cases... Uh, so it, has, it shows one space open on the busiest street, always open because there's a defective sensor or something. Right. Or, yeah. it sho- or the exact opposite where it shows that, you know, everything's always, always occupied. Uh, uh, yeah. Or or doesn't update fast enough. Uh, you know, you know, when we deal with parking accuracy, there's kind of two components to it. There's, you know, is there a car in the space? And then how how what's the latency in getting that information back to the system? So we've seen when we were doing uh the the pilot we did in San Francisco with, you know, almost nine thousand parking spaces, there were areas where if you didn't have data that was, you know, down to three or four seconds uh, of availability, then you would have missed it because you would literally see a car pull out and there would be a car waiting to pull in. And, you know, there's two pieces to that. So not only is it for wayfinding, but the cities want to know what the utilization of their spaces is. So for them, it's really important to understand turnover and know how many cars are coming or going. And if you miss that one car, um, you know, pulling in a new one, you know, that one car pulling out and a new one pulling in, then you've, you've essentially missed a, a parking event, which, you know, in our opinion, that's, that's an error in our system. So we've strived to make sure that we're capturing every event within one to two seconds of when they happen. Yeah. You know, people think about how, how many hours in the day of space is occupied, but I think like what you're talking about is even more valuable. How, how many times did this space turn over? You know, what was the length of time between when a car left and a new car pulled in? I'm sure you you guys have all that data that you provide to your clients because that's that's pretty cool stuff that thinking outside the norm. Yeah, we do. You know, that's, you know, back to your point of looking at an entire block face, you know, for cities to really plan and understand what their parking inventory is doing, what's the utilization, how is it being used by the citizens, you know, to really know what's happening and how many of those transitions or those parking events happen is really critical for them to not only optimize their current system, but plan for, you know, future expansion reduction or, you know, any changes in their parking policies or infrastructure as they move forward. No, that's great stuff. So what about the big one, pricing, using sensors for dynamic pricing? Talk about uh, using sensors for pricing and policy. Yeah. And, you know, we've been doing that for over a decade now with our, with our sensors, uh, with our with our customers and in a few in particular, you know, I mentioned San Francisco in that study that was done from about 2009 to 2013, they actually 
use the sensor data to change their pricing, uh, but they had they 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 came at it from a, an interesting approach. They didn't want to materially raise their parking rates across the board. So what they did is used it to optimize their parking inventory. So what they did is looked at areas that were heavily utilized or you know where there was more than eighty percent occupancy at any given time and raise the rates in those areas so that they could try to get the you know about one or two spaces on every block always open and so they raised the rates i think by 25 cents an hour in those areas but then in the underutilized areas they reduced the rate by 25 cents to encourage people to offload from those heavier utilized areas to the less utilized areas and and they made those changes uh, i think quarterly originally uh so you know if you look at their entire parking inventory across the board they didn't actually change the the overall rate they just manipulated it in different areas to achieve the results they wanted and what they found is that their parking revenue actually went up from about 66 million dollars a year to 99 million dollars a year over the course of 3 years which is a pretty substantial change just from you know utilizing your parking inventory more efficiently I'd say that paid for the investment in the sensors, wouldn't you? Yes, it did. <laughs> uh, and there's, you know, there was another component to that too, which is the compliance factor. Because once, once residents and the people using the parking spaces knew that they were being essentially monitored uh, with the sensors, uh, and that they they couldn't just sneak into a space, hope that they would get away with it for you know the twenty thirty minutes that they were there. Yeah. Um, you know, that encouraged compliance. So what happened is, you know, which is another factor that cities that have paid parking, they want to encourage is people to not try to just cheat it or say, oh, I'm only going to be in there for 10 minutes, so I'm not going to pay the meter. You know, if they felt that they might get a ticket from it, they were more likely to comply and actually pay the meter, which was another contributing factor. Yeah, that's changing behavior. That's really, yeah, that's really, I'm glad you said that. And the other one, while we're on the pricing and policy, I think is the resetting the meter time. I know that's a big one there where there's leftover time on the meter. Yep. Uh, that's that's customer kind of the, drives away, resets, new person comes in and has to pay instead of saying, oh, I got 20 minutes left. Yeah. And that's kind of the holy grail of of the parking sensor industry, I think. So yeah, with, with the meter reset, the challenge that most of the sensor technology has is, and, and most cities have, is they definitely do not want to uh, have that that citizen come in and 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 say that they got a ticket that they shouldn't have gotten and you know we don't want to be a part of that as well um, and to really achieve meter reset and have it function at a reliable level that is uh, satisfactory you know you got to have the most accurate sensors so we're looking at you know 99% 99.5% you know near 100% accuracy with your platform in order to be able to do that and there have been some you know some players in the market that have tried doing meter reset that weren't anywhere near that that level of of accuracy and you know a lot of the cities that have tried it have actually shut that service off because they they found it was more headache than it's worth and you know even with our system even with our system being you know 98 99% i think it's aspirational and it's probably we're probably not there yet and you know i don't think that we're going to see uh, using sensor technology to reset meters anytime in the near future, just because even if we were at 99.5%, that still it's, means... It's that one person, that one person that gets the ticket that shouldn't have. It's not worth it. Exactly. And you talked a little bit about changing behaviors because people know they're being, not watched, but they're being monitored. So uh, that helps with uh, enforcement. Talk a little bit about how this helps with enforcement productivity. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously if you know when a car pulled into a space and how long they've been there and when they've left, and then doing things like directed enforcement become relatively easy to do. And we've got, you know, applications both for the consumer with our parking genius and we have uh, our enforcement application, which then provides the enforcement officers, police department, or whoever is doing the enforcement actual data on real-time violations. So, and we can, we can marry that with payment data as well. So we can pull in payment information into our platform from, from the meter providers. Uh, so we can, you know, actually see when a car pulled into a space, when it was paid, how much was paid, how long they've been there, when the meter is about to expire. And if, you know, the meter expires and the car is still there, we can then through our directed enforcement application, tell the enforcement officers when that violation happened and actually direct them to those violations. And, you know, the other interesting thing is we can then also put sensors into spaces that you may not want people to park in. So if you think of fire zones or in front of fire hydrants, um, you know, those are typically high value uh, from a ticket standpoint, uh, spaces, and they're usually high value from a, a public safety standpoint. So, you know, if someone pulls into those spaces, we can notify the, the enforcement officers through our application that those spaces are in violation, you know, immediately when that happens. I knew, I knew about putting them at meters, but I never thought about putting, letting officers know when they're parked where they're not supposed to be. That's a great point. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people then also say that, well, that, that works great for meters, but we don't, we don't charge for parking in our city. And we've actually found over the last few years that more and more cities are, are approaching us or working with us that don't have paid parking. Uh, they either have all free parking or they have time limited parking. So, you know, in the city that I live in here is a suburb of St. Louis. We're actually deploying in a week and a half, um, a new solution and every every space in this city is either two hour or three hour time limited. And they do use some LPR, um, but the challenge with LPR is it's only as good as, as often as your LPR vehicles circle. So for example, if a car pulls into a space at 10 a.m. and the enforcement- uh, Reads it at 12 and they, yeah, we, we give them till two to leave. Yeah, five exactly. hours, yeah. Exactly. So if there's a, again, and then there's also the issues. Um, I know there's some constitutional issues now with, with actually physically tire chalking cars. Uh, so that's, I believe a couple of years ago, there was a ruling that, that said that that was not constitutional and was not an acceptable means of enforcement anymore. So now a lot of cities are looking at a way of doing that electronically, uh, which is still perfectly fine as long as they're not marking the vehicle. So using a, a sensor in the space, we know exactly when they pulled in, how long they've been there, so we can do electronic chalking uh, through those through those methods now. And that's great. Yeah, again, just you know, you think this is a meter application, but like you're talking about, it's it's cities that don't have meters that that have uh, overtime zones and or maybe safety violations. But is there, you know, is there such thing as too small of an operation? You know, if a small town has problems with people parking in bus stops and crosswalks and they want to put in, you know, 50 sensors and there are 50 uh, places they don't want people parking. Is there, is there like a minimum threshold before you'll talk to someone? Uh, typically, no. Obviously, there's strategic reasons why we would want to go into a particular market. Uh, but what we've found is that, you know, a lot of times we'll go into a large market and then uh, a number of the municipalities and surrounding area will 
that that may not have as large of a need, you know, those 50, 100, 200 spaces uh, will will approach us and ask us if we can, you know, we can help them out as well. And, you know, I think as long as we're in the region or it provides a strategic value, then, you know, there isn't anything that we would consider too small. Great. Thank you. And anything else you want to add to my comment about it not being a meter only application? Yeah, there's actually a really interesting use case that uh, we're at Texas A&M University uh, where they have, you know, it, it's kind of crazy. They actually have more parking spaces than the city of San Francisco. Uh, so it's a, you know, it, wow. it's essentially a huge, a huge city that's, uh, you know, all on a, on a campus and they typically have permit parking. They, in a lot of spaces, use LPR to uh, track those, those timed parking spaces. And you get college kids that don't have a lot of money and are usually very inventive and creative. And you find all sorts of interesting use cases where they find ways around the system. So what we actually found with our sensors that are deployed there is that, you know, we started seeing uh, a number of spaces that were occupied, but weren't paid for, for, you know, sometimes several hours. And what we found is that these students knew when the LPR vehicles were going to be circling the lots and they would either come in right before and sit in their cars. So when the LPR guy came around, they would be in their car and they'd be like, I just pulled in, you know, I haven't paid yet. I'll pay in a minute. Um, when in reality, they were spending an hour, two hours in their car studying before class, or they would go to class and know that, you know, they went to class at 8 a.m. and the LPR car wasn't going to come around until 9.30 or 10. So they would sit in class for 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, and then pay by the app, uh, you know, when they felt that it was getting close to the time when they might be coming through. Uh, so, you know, we found that they were losing in, in some of these spaces as much as 80% of their revenue. Wow. That's, that's a great case study. Yeah. And I know the folks, Peter Lang and the Texas A&M, they run a great operation. Didn't know they were using fiber. So that's pretty cool. But what about lastly, are there other things Besides parking, so are there other benefits outside of parking by putting in a parking sensor? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, there's, there's a number of different use cases. You know, uh, you know just directly from our sensor alone, uh, we also have a, you know, a thermometer in it, essentially, uh, which gives us information about the, you know, the, the battery performance and kind of the battery temperature uh, for optimization for, for charging and, and you know, overall battery life. But we also found that that actually gives us a pretty good indicator of roadbed temperature. So if you think of, you know, a, a parking sensor being in the ground, you know, maybe it's on a space that's on a on a, on a bridge or an elevated area or, or an area that's prone to flooding and freezing. Uh, you know, we can actually tell uh, cities as well what the temperature of the roadbed is. Uh, so, you know, or the flip side of that is they can also look at is it getting really hot and might might vehicles driving on it or cause particular damage if it gets too hot, you know, in, in areas like Texas, uh, or is that roadbed uh, about to hit freezing point where there might be black ice on the road as well? So we can provide cities that types of information as well. You know, another interesting use case. Never thought case, about that. Never thought about that. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Another interesting use case that's kind of an offshoot of, of parking is curbside management, which is becoming kind of the hot topic for a lot of cities now, especially with COVID and you know, more of us, you know, ordering Amazon and, and delivery services and, and not going out as much. You know, how do you manage all of these, these ultra short-term parking 
sessions that happen. You know, it's a delivery driver, it's an Uber driver, it's the Amazon guy, the FedEx guy. Uh, so, you know, we actually take our sensors and we we're working with, uh, the city of Seattle and, uh, university of Washington and a DOE funded study right now, where we've deployed our sensors across a number of commercial and passenger loading zones and are giving them real time occupancy. And, you know, if it's a hundred foot loading zone, we've dropped in an array of sensors so we can actually tell them, you know, the length of the vehicle that's parked there and the available curb length. So if you get a UPS truck. You know, that might eat up three-fourths of your, your loading zone. What we can tell them three-fourths of your loading zone is utilized here right now. So, you know, if you have another large UPS truck, you might want to go find another loading zone or, or come back to that, that drop-off, you know, in 10 minutes or something. Yeah, that's been, I think they call them smart loading zones. That's one of the big, uh, is that what you're doing in, in Seattle? Because I think they're doing something with loading zones as of late. Yeah, yeah, that's where we're, we are with uh, University of Washington and we're the sensor provider for that study. Yeah, so you guys have, man, you mentioned Montreal, San Francisco, D.C., a lot of great case studies, some of the larger cities in, in North America or in the world, really, that, that are using fiber. So anything you like to do for fun when you're not putting in parking sensors? Uh, what do I do for fun? Um, <laughs> let's see. I just built a new set of uh, high, you know, a, a high-end set of speakers. I'm building a wood kayak. I just distilled gin uh on saturday so or over the weekend so we, we got a renaissance man here yeah He's doing everything yeah <laughs> that's awesome yeah we're we're a pretty eclectic group at fiber we've got some really interesting characters that work for us yeah that's great how can we follow along these these interesting characters uh how can we follow along with fiber and learn more about fiber yeah fiber.com f-y-b-r.com you know, check out the website and, you know, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. All right, man. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Matt. I had a blast uh, learning more about sensors. I feel I'm ready to go and talk as an expert about sensors the next time a, a client asks me and learning more about fiber. So thank you so much for joining the podcast. Have a great week. It was great to be here. Thanks. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Parking Podcast. Please leave us a review and tell a friend about our show. It would mean a lot. This has been a production of Synchronicity Media, produced by me, Isaiah Mao. Our music and score is by Zona. Our show art and design is by the talented Allison Gilly. You can follow us on social media at The Parking Podcast, or you can find our website with bonus content at parkingcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. This episode is brought to you by Parker Technology, the customer experience solution of choice in the parking industry. Parker's solution puts a virtual ambassador in every lane to help parking guests pay and get on their way in under a minute. Parker helps capture revenue, provides better customer service, enables your staff to focus on other on-site tasks, and keeps traffic moving, all according to your business rules. With the Parker solution, you'll also enjoy access to real-time call data and recordings. Learn more at helpmeparker.com slash parkingpodcasts. Are you interested in your parking organization becoming APO, Accredited Parking Organization Certified through the International Parking and Mobility Institute? Or perhaps you're interested in one of your green garages becoming ParkSmart Certified through USGBC? Well, the Parking Podcast is here to help. Our Parking Accreditations Consultants Network will ensure you are matched with the best site reviewer or green garage assessor available for a fraction of the price. Learn more at parkingcast.com consulting.
This episode is brought to you by the International Parking and Mobility Institute, publishers of the industry's only soup-to-nuts textbook about all things parking. It's called A Guide to Parking, and several of our guests from previous episodes have contributed to this wonderful little textbook. Learn more and order your own copy at parking-mobility.org textbook.